The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, um, real quick, I almost forgot to do this, um, but I think it would be important to do, especially in light of what we talked about last Sunday with regards to the, persecution, the persecuted church globally. Um, we are blessed to live in a land where we can gather freely. One second, guys. We, we are blessed to, to be able to, to worship in a place, uh, to live in a land where we can worship freely without fear of persecution. Um, and that is not only a gift from God, but it's something that did come with a price for many people. And um, this coming week is Veterans Day. It's a day our nation has set aside to honor those who have served in uh, foreign wars and conflicts and of that nature. And so, especially in light of what we talked about last week with the lack of freedom so many of our brothers and sisters experience overseas, um, we want to take just an opportunity to honor those whom God used to secure and protect the freedom that we do have here in this nation. So if you are a veteran, um, would you do me a favor and just stand with us for just a minute so we can just honor you? Amen. Look at that. Hey, no, stay up, stay up, stay up. No, 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 no. Get back up, get back up, get up. Amen. Let's pray for these guys. If you guys just remain standing for just one more second, sorry, just one second. God, we just want to thank you so much, Lord, for how the scriptures say that you even turn the hearts of kings, that you are sovereign over every nation, every conflict, every war. And Lord, even amongst us right now, we have so many men and women, Lord, here that you have used to protect this nation. And Lord, while there may be things in our nation that can trouble us, there always has been. There's no doubt that you have used this country to spread your gospel in an amazing way throughout the world. You've used this country to feed those who need food throughout the world, to bring relief and protection to those who can't stand for themselves. And so, Lord, there's no doubt in my mind that, Lord, you have used these men and women to accomplish your purposes in this nation, and we are grateful. And so, God, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that they would understand their role in your kingdom now more than ever. I pray, God, you would bless and protect veterans, Lord, from things such as post-traumatic stress and those issues, Lord, and just give them, Lord, clarity of vision to see you working in their lives and in this country. And I pray, God, you would just help them to see how you have used them, and may they be encouraged by that. Thank you, Lord, for them in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. You can have a seat. God bless you guys. Hey, we're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. If you would turn there with me, that would be awesome. Really feeling encouraged today. Um, this week, we took an opportunity to get the staff together, and, and we took our entire staff away for a couple of days um, and spent some time up at a, a cabin up at Lake of the Woods just taking in leadership teachings. Yeah, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, raise your hand nice and high. We've got some men with some they would love to, to help you with. And if you don't own a Bible, then that's a gift to you. But um, it, we believe it's important that you'd be able to follow along with us. So there's another one down here and one right over here, guys. There's one on each side there. So um, I got to take the staff with me this week, uh, Wednesday through Friday, and we just spent a few days up in the mountains just focusing on leadership and trying to learn from, from others with a lot of wisdom that have gone before us and, and just try to learn how we can best serve and lead this church. And it was just a great time bonding the team together and, uh, um, and just really considering the things that are going on and just 
enjoying one another's company. We have a real family environment within our staff, and it was a lot of fun. Thank you to Vern, who taught for us on Wednesday night, and for those who kind of held down the fort. Um, it's not often that you have a church where you can remove the entire staff, pastors, and everyone and still have service. And I thought that was fantastic. So thank you guys for that. Um, this week I will be back. I haven't taught a Wednesday night in like forever. Um, and it's not been vacation oriented. It's just been one of those seasons. But, um, but I'll be back Wednesday night. I want to encourage you guys to, if you're not plugging in with us on Wednesday nights, man, um, take that in, man. Take an opportunity to come and join us as we're going through the book of Mark. We're heading towards the crucifixion in Mark right now. So there's some really important stuff coming up. And I uh, would look forward to be with you guys Wednesday night at 7. For now, we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 in our verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Corinthians. I'm going to read verses 14 through 18, and then we'll go dig in. Let's look at it together. It says, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. One of the most common criticisms against the church deals with the issue of exclusivity. That the Christian church and the Christian people, the Christian faith and its doctrines are too exclusive. Draw too many lines. Shut too many people out. Try to protect their own thing. And this happens from both inside the church and from outside the church. So for example, those outside the church would say, obviously, you Christians, you're just too close-minded. You only accept certain things, and you say there's only one way to heaven. And so people that don't believe exactly like you, you keep them out, and you don't agree with them, and you're just too exclusive. Why are you judging beliefs like that? But it happens also within the church. There's many within the church that believe the church is way too exclusive. And so you'll have people that say, why are you so dogmatic about this belief, or about this belief, or about this belief? Why are you judging one another? You're not supposed to judge other people for the things that they think or believe. And all of you that you think your way is right and everyone else's way is wrong. And so there can be attacks, um, accusations of exclusivity coming from all directions within the church. And so today we're at a passage that deals with this very principle. And because of that, when you're talking about exclusivity and making decisions there, you're also talking about a major buzzword in those that want to attack the church today, and that's the idea of judgment, making judgments. And so this passage today is an important one, I believe, for us here at Heritage to get right, to understand. And so my prayer is that this morning, whatever it is, that if we're sleepy, if we're tired, if we're checking football scores, Denver doesn't play till later, don't worry. But, but my prayer is that we can lean forward and really understand Paul's heart for the church with regard to these topics. Because these are major accusations that are flying around. They've, they've been historically against the church from outside, but we're seeing more and more of it happening from within the church. And so how are we to deal with issues of who we exclude, who we align with, who we support, who we don't? 
and how we judge one another. Are Christians to judge? This is a major and important topic. So before we even go any forward, let's just stop right now and pray that God would clear our minds and give us the ability to focus in and receive everything that his word has for us this morning. Let's pray. God, the human heart is prideful and arrogant and sinful. That includes mine and every other one in this room, Lord. Our inclination is to desire to be right, to put ourselves on a pedestal, to puff ourselves up and to pat ourselves on the back. And Lord, history is full of examples where that very thing has happened. But God, our desire this morning is that your word would rule over your church, that we would humble ourselves before your word, receive your instruction and your will, that God, you would direct this church And that we might stand boldly, not on our ability, our knowledge, or our revelation, but that we might stand boldly on your word. That our feet might be firmly planted on the foundation of Jesus Christ and his gospel. So Lord, will you give us the ability to focus on this very controversial topic even today? To understand it, to if you will get it right, that we might be good and effective witnesses in the world around, but that also your church might be protected and its mission preserved. So God, I pray you would speak even through the likes of me, that you would protect people from words that don't reflect your heart, that you would guide even my very tongue, the Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O our King, our Rock, our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. So here Paul says right out the bat, very well-known passage, often quoted passage, especially with regards to dating, right? Do not be unequally yoked with believers. And he does this forcibly. It's not just a passing statement. In fact, if you think about it, it seems out of line with some of the things he's talking about. I mean, we're talking about as servants of God and how to endure suffering. And then all of a sudden he's telling them, like, widen your hearts, open your hearts. That's what he says as he finishes here in verse 13. Widen your hearts also the way I've opened my heart to you. And then all of a sudden there's this whiplash almost motion where he says, widen your hearts. Do not, though, be unequally yoked. They seem to clash. One's talking about be open and the other's uh-uh-uh. And Paul says it forcibly. He says things like, what partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship does light have with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial? If your translation says that, that's another uh, way of saying and, and uh, kind of rarely said, but emphasized use of the word Belial, speaking of Satan. What fellowship does Christ have with Satan? These are strong words, not just some passing, oh, and if you think about it, don't be unequally yoked. No, he is hammering home suddenly, almost out of nowhere it might seem. So why is he doing this? Why is, he, why is he making such a big deal? And what is it that he's actually saying here when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers? Well, I want to sort of reverse engineer this a little bit, if you will. Before we talk about exactly what he's saying, I want to begin with the foundation from which he is saying these things. Because if you look at verse 16, the second half, he says, we are the temple of the living God. And then he quotes three different passages from the Old Testament. First, he quotes Ezekiel 37, 27, when he says, I will make my dwelling among them, I will walk among them, I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's a passage 
given to the prophet Ezekiel to speak to the people of Israel to tell them, look, you're in bondage now. You're in exile now, but it's not going to be that way forever. The Messiah is coming. I'm going to walk among you and you are going to be my people. He's saying there is an event coming that is going to change your present situation. Important to know. Then he quotes Isaiah 52. Therefore, go out from their midst Be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. He's speaking to the people again in exile and surrounded by idolatry. People who are being encouraged to participate in the idolatry in their culture. Their captors, their desire was to get the Jewish people who they had brought into captivity to take on the practices and the worship of all of their false doctrine. And their goal was to assimilate these people into the culture so that Israel would lose its identity. No longer worshiping the God of their fathers, but just sort of drifting into and assimilating into this pagan culture that was there. So if you will, really the Jewish people would no longer exist. Certainly not its worship practices, its culture, and its background. God says, don't do that. Stay back. I'm going to welcome you. I'm I'm coming again in a passage where God through Isaiah, tells Israel there is an event coming, a historical event. Something is going to happen that will change your current situation. Hang in there. Then Paul quotes in verse 18, 2 Samuel 7, 4, promise given to the kings of old and says, and I will be a father to you and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. What Paul is doing here is emphasizing what we often refer to as gospel-centeredness. See, these texts, all three of those passages that Paul quotes, are taken from passages that point to a specific event. They're not philosophies. They're not like, here's how I would like you to operate as a king. Here's how I would like you to operate as a people. They are pointing to, hey, there is an event coming. Something is going to happen in history that is going to change the way you see things and the way you live now. And you will be different. He says, not only is this event going to change your situation as slaves, but I will be your God. I will be your father. Your very identity is going to change when this event happens. That's why those passages were all written. And so now here's Paul writing from the New Testament, pointing back to those events to sort of do the same thing, but in hindsight. He's saying, listen, Corinthian church, as he writes to his church that he had planted many years previously, he's saying, guys, listen up. Something happened. Something in history occurred that has changed who you are. Something has happened that has changed not just your place, not just how you operate. It has changed your very identity. You are no longer who you used to be before this event took place. And of course, we know what Paul is talking about. In each of those texts, he's speaking about the coming Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus himself, who would come and give his life on the altar, if you will, crucified for the sins of all the world, taking Israel's blame, taking our blame, taking anyone who would put their faith in Jesus, taking their sin, their shame, their guilt, their blame upon himself, but then giving to us a robe of righteousness, 
giving us his name, if you will, making us his children. We are now adopted into the family of God. And so because an actual event happened, everything changed after this. It's not like a philosophy, like you should live this way now. It'd be a good idea for you moving forward. But no, what he's saying is something changed and you're not the same anymore. The reason this is such a great example of gospel-centeredness is because what Paul is doing here is he's saying, look, you're going to approach life differently now, but you're not approaching life because you're trying to earn God's favor. What you have to understand is your identity has changed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And because of that change, because you're someone different, because you are not who you used to be, you will now approach the world differently. Way different. Do you guys see the difference in the two? He's not saying, look, knock it off. I want you to do this and this and this and this and this. And if you do this, God's going to be pleased with you. But instead, he's reaching to their identity as sons and daughters of God as the mechanism by which behavior will change. That's what we refer to as being gospel-centered, that it's the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ that affects everything that we do. And so when Paul comes in here and says, you're not going to be unequally yoked, he first is reaching to, or his foundation for this argument, I should say, is that because you're different. Not because, hey, try to be different. He's, no, 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 you are different. And because you're different, you're going to operate differently in this world. It's a beautiful example of how we're to be and the idea that it's identity that affects behavior. And he says here, look, you have been saved. You are a temple of the Most High God. You have been washed by the blood of the Lamb of God. You have been forgiven of your sins. As the scriptures say, you have been set to walk in high places. You have been adopted into the family of God, and you are now a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Something happened in history that changed everything for you, and you are different now. This is what Paul is saying to them. And he then says, because of this, because of who you are, because of this change that has happened in you and your very core, your identity. Don't be unequally yoked with those who have not been changed in this same way. This idea of being unequally yoked, this is an um, agricultural term. If we could put this picture up here, we've got a picture here. Here is a yoke. And attached to this yoke is a donkey and an ox. Two different animals, two different purposes, two different backgrounds, two different personalities, two different value systems yoked together. And when you put animals on a yoke, it's not just for, it's for a specific purpose, is it not? You put animals on a yoke for a purpose. There's a mission that it's given. You're going to have these animals pull, let's use the example of pulling a plow, could be pulling a cart, but we'll stay agricultural. They're pulling a, a plow. So you want to take two animals, yoke them together because these two are stronger than one by itself. And together, two animals can pull a plow through hard dirt. It's going to break up the ground so that the mission, the job of the farmer can be accomplished. It's task-oriented. You understand? So he's saying here, you're not to be unequally yoked. It's an agricultural term that would say you would never do this. You would never take an ox that is a strong, stable designed, if you will, to be able to do work, even just like this, and then attach it to a donkey that's stubborn, it's weaker, it wants to go off this way when you want it to go that way, or it doesn't want to go anywhere at all. He says, look, don't do this. If you yoke yourself to something that is not equal, you're either the strong one's going to be dragging the weak one around, you're going to go around in circles, for example. Anybody ever gotten in a paddle boat where you got the two paddles on the thing and you just go in circles because your kid's in the other seat? You're like riding the trim on the thing over here so that you can just go straight. 
This is the idea. It's task-oriented, and he's saying there is a job and mission that's been given to you because of who you are. And with that in mind, it's just a plain old practical wisdom that says don't be unequally yoked with those that are unequal, that don't have that same vision, don't have that same mission. You will not accomplish the task that you're called to, and anything that you are able to accomplish is going to be filled with frustration and angst and difficulty. It's going to be hard. So just don't do it. That's what he means by unequally yoked. So what is it here then that Paul's talking about? When he says, don't be unequally yoked, what's he saying in regards to? And practically, like let's put some skin on the bones of this. What is it that he means when he says this? Well, this passage is used in a few different ways. Number one, it's used with regards to marriage. Most common and probably most often most understood use of the phrase, don't be unequally yoked, deals with relationships. That would be used, for example, to say to young people, and young people, listen up, it's a big deal. Don't be unequally yoked. Do not missionary date, for example. Oh, but he's cute. Cute doesn't last. Look at your dad. (laughs) Doesn't last. And so we would use things like this to say, listen, understand something. If you enter into this covenant contract, and that's really what we're talking about, the first time this principle comes up is actually far back in the Old Testament when God is preparing the people of Israel to go into the promised land. The promised land is like filled with pagans, filled with pagan religion. And God says to them, listen, when you go into the land, you are going to eliminate your enemies and get rid of them. Do not enter into covenant with them. And the reason is he's going, look, you have two different people, two different purposes, Two different goals, two different missions, serving two different gods. And so same, same is true within marriage. The idea is this, and look, this has been used in some horrific and wicked ways throughout history. It's been used even in racist ways. And this is a, it's been really misused. But the idea of saying that you're not to be unequally yoked means, look, your identity as a child of God means you have a certain calling, mission, use, value system in your life that does not line up with those who have not been saved by Jesus Christ, no matter how moralistic, good, and nice they may seem to be. And listen, marriage is hard enough already to go into it with different missions and different endpoints, different destinations involved. Amen, married people? It's just a bad idea. And I could connect you in this building with believers that are here in marriages that are, if you will, unequally yoked. And they can tell you about the difficulties and the heartache and the pain, the misunderstandings, the arguments, all sorts of issues that come up out of this. Now, the Bible doesn't say that you're to abandon. If you're in one, then just get out. It doesn't say that. If you are married already to someone who is not a believer, then the desire is that God will use that relationship to save that person. So you don't bail on that. Don't get me wrong. But it's just a horrible idea beyond breaking a commandment of God as it does to enter into a relationship with someone that does not share your faith and doesn't have the same mission. And I, honestly, gals, men, I, I would take this even further. Because there's a broad spectrum in our culture that says, I'm Christian. But when you look at people's lives and how they operate in those lives, man, there's a lot of different things to determine from that. So I would say you need to find someone that's like not just saying I'm Christian, but has the same desires, goals, and calling of God on their life and understands it as you. Or it's going to be hard. But too many people are getting married, rolling the dice, saying, well, we'll figure this all out later. And it's painful. 
So this passage gets used with regards to don't be unequally yoked in marriage. It also works with regards to business partnerships. Um, now, not just partnerships, like, okay, we will not shop at that store because that store is owned by unbelievers, but I'm talking about two people taking their time, treasure, talents, all of these things, investing them in together and entering into contractual relationships, even though they have different goals. And you say, well, wait a minute, man, that seems like you're mixing the, the secular world and the work world with your faith. Yes, we're supposed to. But, but here's why. A Christian who is leading a business should understand the gospel call on his life to use this business not only to glorify God, but to accomplish the will of God in the kingdom of God on the earth here today. So a believer running a business should look different than an unbeliever running the same business. That's a really good litmus test for you to use. If I was not in this position and there was an unbeliever, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus leading this company, would they lead this company the exact same way that I do? That answer better be no. Because you should be using that opportunity and that position God's blessed you with to reach out, to bless people, to care for people, to be generous. You should be using your position even in your business as a missionary to the employees that you have. And so the idea of entering into a covenant head, if you will, for a business with someone who doesn't share your value system, you're just setting yourself up for difficulty. And so some would say you just shouldn't do such a thing. And then finally, people would just say this is just in regards to sin in general. What fellowship does darkness have with light? This idea that, look, Paul says you are a temple of the spirit of the living God. So what are you doing going into a strip club? Who would do such a thing? You're a temple of God. And I can remember being said this way when I was young. Like, you are carrying the very spirit of God into the places that you go. What business do you have in these places? Why are you still in this drug house? Why are you in this strip club? Why are you out here pounding beers with the, at the bars? I guess we talk about dope in Oregon nowadays. But whatever the case may be. Like, why are you doing that? You're different. What are you doing here? You don't fit. You're different. You're a child of God. Why are you here? Now, all of those are true. Amen? There's wisdom in all those. You guys with me? Everybody say it's true. Turn to your neighbor and say, no, it's really, it's true. But is that, any of those three, what Paul is talking about in this passage when he says, don't be unequally yoked? I would say, no. This isn't a passage about marriage. This isn't a passage about business this isn't a passage about sin in general. Though actually I think that's the strongest argument because verse one of chapter seven goes on to say, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. And people take this passage and use it to teach about marriage and to teach about partnerships and covenants and those things. And the Bible does teach about those things. Those are true. Once again, everybody say it's true. It's true, but that's not what Paul is talking about in this specific passage. So what is it that Paul is talking about in this specific passage? Well, as you guys know, if you don't figure this out by now, you're not listening. The first three rules of biblical interpretation are context, context, context. These letters are written by the Spirit of God from a real person to real people in real time. There was a real message being sent to address a real situation. 
And so before we start with application, we need to understand exactly what's being said, and then we draw application from that. Our, our goal should not be to go, I want to talk about marriage, and here's how I will force marriage into this text, because you could go all over the place in Scripture doing that. That's called eisegesis, cramming something you want to talk about into a text, even though that text doesn't talk about that. Our goal is what's referred to as exegesis, to pull out from the text the truth and the application that God put here not to put one in ourselves. You tracking with me on that? So we go to the context to try to understand what is it that Paul's actually talking about right here? Well, Paul's writing a letter to the Corinthian church, a church he planted to address the reality that false teachers have come into Corinth and have infiltrated this church. They've started throwing Paul under the bus. They've attacked his doctrine. They've attacked him Personally, they've thrown all of this under the bus and they are now preaching a false gospel to the church in Corinth. They're preaching what we would refer to today in many ways as a prosperity theology. This idea of suffering and difficulty that Paul's always talking about, forget that stuff, man. This is about you. God wants to bless you and look at us. And they're all polished and they're wealthy and they're all put together. Paul even refers to them as super apostles. Man, they just look too good to be true. And these are the people that have infiltrated Paul's church, and they have attacked Paul. And so now, Paul is writing to them, defending his ministry and calling the church to get back on track. The ministry of this church is completely unraveling, and Paul is calling them to return to their strength. And so here Paul says to them, these men that have come in and that are now influencing you and influencing the teaching and you're getting wisdom and leadership and counsel from them as a church, but they are not preaching the same gospel that you are founded on. You have been changed, Paul says. You've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. The gospel has affected your lives. And now you're allowing wisdom from outside that's coming in preaching a different gospel that denies the very gospel that has changed you. Why would you do that? Why are you listening to them? Why are you aligning yourself to people? They're giving you life counsel when they have no idea about the actual life Christ has called you to live. They're unqualified to give you counsel. You have no fellowship with them. That's what Paul is talking about. Now, we can make this application for us here as a church in two distinct ways. The, the first is the church corporately, or you might say organizationally. What do we, Heritage Christian Fellowship as a whole, do in light of texts like this? Well, let's understand this with regards to our associations. Why is it? that Heritage Christian Fellowship this year decided to, made the choice to align themselves, to associate themselves with the Acts 29 church planning network and not, oh, I don't know, Kenneth Hagin or Joel Osteen or someone else like that. What sets those two apart? What governs the decisions of the church here and why we make such discussions? Well, it's in the text, verses 16 through 18 that we just read, this, this idea that it is an event in history that has changed the identity of who the people of God are. Something occurred in history that has made us who we are. And so because Jesus came, because Jesus has adopted us into his family, because Jesus has planted our feet firmly on the gospel of Jesus Christ, that belief then has to rule over our associations, our formal uh, associations, contracts, affiliations, whatever you want to call that, as a church. And so here he uses those quotes and he says, listen, 
any organization, any other church, you can call a lot of things church nowadays, but I'll avoid that rabbit trail. Any other church, organization, um, causes that exist to make much of anything other than Christ are off limits. Because your call as the people of God is to exalt the Lord. Our mission statement here, to exalt the Lord, to equip the saints, and to engage the world around us. And so, listen, your job is to exalt the Lord in everything that you do. Therefore, you cannot affiliate yourself and associate yourself with other ministries, other networks, or other churches who don't exist for the same purpose. You just can't. And so you see situations like the Osteens that, that just came out just a few weeks ago where Victoria Osteen on stage at the church said, when we worship God, we don't worship God for him. We do it for us. That's heresy. And so the idea of affiliations or movements, be they Mormonism to prosperity theology, if they are not existing to exalt the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who died for us, we don't have any business being a part of them, not because we're like, oh, we hate them, but just because we're different. We're not like them. And so with regards to Acts 29, our, ch our church leadership, we just felt like, man, we just feel like we need to be aligned with resources and brotherhood and all these things that I talked to you guys a few weeks about that caused us, if you will, to join A29. That was a long process for us because here's the reality of it is, okay? So we're different. We're not to align with people that don't follow the gospel. Do you know what that entails then, right? That means judgment. You have to make judgment. And you go, no, you can't mean that. You don't do that. Doesn't the Bible teach that we don't judge? Yes. In fact, Jesus says it, does it not? Will you put this slide up from Matthew chapter seven? He says, judge not, lest you not be judged. For with judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That is a very often quoted passage. Christians, you don't judge. That is unchristian of you. Jesus teaches not to judge. Is that true? Well, he, he says it. But elsewhere, doesn't he say things like, hey, there's gonna be wolves in sheep's clothing. Have nothing to do with them. Elsewhere in the scriptures, it says that we're even to judge ourselves. So there seems to be this paradox. There's passages in scriptures that call us to judge, but here's Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 saying, judge not that you not be judged. How, that's a contradiction. The Bible must be false. Let's throw the whole thing away. There's people that would say that, but it's not true. Go back to context. In this particular passage, Jesus is teaching his disciples about the religious leaders that are going around in that day, the Pharisees. And what he's saying is, don't do what they do. The Pharisees are going around judging one another in such a way that exalts themselves and lets everyone, points their fingers down at everyone else. So here's these Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they are the most spiritual. They're the ones that walk on their high horses. And they would even, as they navigate through the city or through the, the markets and areas, they would pull their robes close and tight around themselves because they didn't even want their clothing touching anyone else because everyone else is unholy. They're the ones that have it all figured out. And so when they would judge others, what they are doing is elevating themselves and putting other people beneath them. Jesus flips this around. You can see this in the context. Look at the very next verse that comes. Matthew 7, verse 3. Put that slide up, would you? Jesus then says, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? 
Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This is what Jesus is saying. Not everyone's qualified to judge. There are those who cannot see situations going on around them clearly enough to actually make accurate assessments of what's going on and it's because they have sin so large that it's skewed their view completely. And in that particular context, he's talking about the Pharisees. And the idea was this. They thought they were so righteous and so perfect and so good that they were now without sin, they were God's favorite, and they were looking down on everyone else. So they're not even considering their own hearts, but they are pointing fingers at sin all around them all the time, and they're going, sinner, 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 don't touch me, sinner. And so their judgment was about exalting themselves and putting others down. Jesus says, look, don't do that. What they don't even realize, they're pointing out sins here and there, the woman caught in adultery. They're looking at that like, that is an incredibly massive sin, and they're calling her out on that, and Jesus is saying, there's a much greater sin that's in your own eye, and that's your own self-righteousness. At least she understands she needs salvation. You don't, and that reality will keep you out of the kingdom of God because you'll never ask for the grace and mercy of Jesus. You don't think you need it. It's a much bigger deal. And so Jesus says, look, When you're judging, you need to understand your own heart. We need to approach things humbly. That's why Galatians says that when we see a brother that's overtaken in sin, like to know that our brother is overtaken in sin requires a certain degree of judgment, does it not? But it says to do it how? Restore him humbly, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So when we see someone overtaken in sin, what is our heart attitude when we see that? And if we are pointing it out, whether it be to our wife or someone else, what's the attitude and the purpose behind that? Is it to make you look good? Look at that sinner. If they were like me. Is it to make you feel better maybe about things that you're wrestling with? You see someone else with what they're dealing with and you go, I don't feel so bad around that guy. If that guy's a Christian, I am solid. That's how people feel. That's how people feel. And Jesus is saying, don't do this. The very essence of the gospel assures us that we are all desperately in need of the mercy of God. And Christianity starts with humility. If you've left humility out of it completely and you're coming from pride, that's not Christianity, that's religion. And the, old, the people Jesus called out the most in his ministry were not the people caught up in lust, caught up in addictions, the things that we would look at as the most scandalous sins. The people Jesus really got fired up about were the religious leaders that were puffing themselves up in their own righteousness and throwing those in need under the bus every chance they got. Jesus says, don't be like them. We either judge situations and judge behaviors and judge doctrines humbly considering ourselves, realizing that anything that we do have right is a gift from God and not something we should boast about anyway, or we do not judge at all. But we do not do that. So any judgment, I see, I see discernment ministries and blogs and things like that that come out and they are pointing fingers left and right as if it's a hobby. That is sinful and religious and wicked. If you address anything, and we're supposed to as Christians, it's got to be done from humility and gratitude at the grace of Jesus Christ that he could possibly save a wretch like you and me. 
So we judge, but we judge from a place of humility. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't judge boldly, because Paul did. Look at this one text. You've maybe seen it before. 1 Timothy 1, verse 19. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may not learn to blaspheme. Aren't you glad your name's not in the Bible for examples such as this? There was a false teacher that came through Medford about a year or two ago. Straight up wolf, false teacher. And online I wrote something about, hey, there's this guy coming into town. Do not get sucked into this. This guy's history is horrible. Here's places you can go to learn who this guy is. And they're trying to bring all these people together to do that. I wrote about this online. Some of you guys saw some of that. Well, I got an email or three from some people that were fired up. Praise God, not from within our church, but people that I knew from past experiences and things. And they were hammering me. You can't do that. That's a man of God. You are not supposed to go and judge others. You are not supposed to point your finger. You're causing division in the church. I'm like, like I, I assure you, I'm not pointing my finger at a brother and calling him wicked. I'm pointing my finger at a wolf and calling him wicked. And I see a lot of freedom within the scriptures to do that with humility and discernment. There is a massive track record of history with this guy. But he's speaking truth. You know what? A false teacher can give you just enough truth to hide all the falsities that they're giving you. You know that's how inoculations work for diseases. They give you just enough of the disease to keep you from actually getting it. And, and doesn't Jesus go on to say in, in Matthew chapter 7, just a few verses later, he's going to go on to say, beware wolves in sheep's clothing. You know what that means? That means there are wolves that look like sheep. And the job of a shepherd, whether you're shepherding your family or shepherding the church, is to distinguish, looking at the fruit and the track record and the teachings of someone, to distinguish, is that a wolf or is that a sheep? And to discern which ones are dangerous. And when you see a wolf, you don't go, okay, sheep, this sweet little guy over here, he's sort of missed. You should probably keep a little bit of distance. Is that what a shepherd would do? Those of you that have animals, if you saw a wolf in your yard threatening your family or your kids or your livestock, would you be humble or would you grab the gun? And so there's a sense where we analyze and we consider and judge from a place of humility, but when a wolf is spotted, we need to react boldly. I mean, the, the, I'm, I'm just telling you, we have given so much ground as the church in so many different areas, the church could use some humble people who are willing to then speak out boldly about the dangers to our theology throughout the world. We need more of that. It's a big deal. And if you don't believe this, then let me explain to you why this is such an issue. In 1933, I'll give you one little historical example of why this is such a big deal. In 1933, Biblical liberalism ruled the day in America and everywhere. Liberal interpretations of the scriptures ruled the day. And what that means is it's not like a political thing like in this day and age. What it means is that liberal interpretations, meaning like, well, there's nothing really solid in here. We don't know what we can and can't believe. Um, and so we really don't want to draw a lot of hard lines. That's what's referred to as liberalism with regards to biblical interpretation. And at that day, the scriptures were horribly under attack. Um, in fact, liberal scholars were so prevalent and had, had, had attacked, excuse me, the scriptures so much that there was very little where the church anywhere had real solid convictions and faith that we can make stands on these issues because everything was picked apart. It's kind of the way a lot of theology is headed in our culture today. 
well, I know it says this, but it, it doesn't really mean that, so that's not really a sin, and that didn't really apply to us, and just a real liberal take on the interpretation of Scripture. And this was going on all over the world. It was going on big time in Germany. In Germany, there was a massive spread of liberal theology that was being infected by some of the political culture at the time in the 1930s. You know your history, you know what I'm talking about. There were some men in Germany that were brave men who stood up, seeing what was going on in the world around them, and began to speak out with conviction and authority against what was going on. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one. Martin Niemöller, Niemöller, I don't know how to pronounce that. Let's just call him Martin, was doing some of this as well. Um, Bonhoeffer even created a seminary to try to teach young men the truths of Scripture and to stand against the tide of theology in the world at that point. And in 1933... It was the celebration of what would have been, I think it's the 145th birthday of Martin Luther, the great reformer who had separated the Protestant church from the things that were going on in the Catholic church at the time. He was German, so he's a national hero in Germany. And so there were celebrations for Martin Luther's life all over the place. And this guy, Martin, who's named after him, Martin Niemöller, stands up and he's speaking to a small group that had gathered together, and he said this, He said, there is absolutely no sense in talking of Luther and celebrating his memory in the Protestant church if we don't stop at Luther's image and then look to him to whom Luther pointed, a Jew, a rabbi in Nazareth. So you got people celebrating all over the country, Martin Luther, he's our hero, and this guy's going, hey, you're drifting away from the foundations, you're you're celebrating this guy, you're not even looking to the guy he pointed at, who, by the way, was a Jew, Now, you know what was going on in the culture at the time, right? In fact, one day later, one day after that speech, gathered together under the banner of the German Evangelical Church in Berlin, a bishop named Hassenfelder would stand up in front of 20,000 Christians in an arena, and he would there verbally institute the new program of Arianism as a doctrine of the Christian church in Germany. And in that one announcement, that one announcement evicted any Jew from any office, membership, or position within any of the churches in Germany. It also dismissed the Bible as too Semitic and ordered a new translation of the scriptures that got rid of any heroic references to Jews whatsoever. And they decided, this suffering Jesus, that's too weak. We're going to replace this idea of a suffering Jesus with a conquering king as the German Empire was emphasizing strength. So, now, some, what, 75 years, 6 million dead Jews later, 60 million dead soldiers in World War II later, we understand that theology and that speech for what it was. Wickedness, evil, sinful, that was damning to that culture. That requires judgment. That requires, you know what? He is not speaking truth and we have nothing to do with him. And brave men like Bonhoeffer did that and gave their lives standing on the truths of scripture. This is what's required of the church. The scriptures tell us you are stewards of the mysteries of God. Given to you is the scriptures. Just think of where we are now. Paul's saying, look, you have been adopted in the family of God. You've been filled with the Spirit of God. You have the Scriptures, the declared Word of God. You can look at the example of the life of Jesus Christ, who's the very embodiment and person of God, 
this spirit of discernment within you, and you've got 2,000 years of church history to look at, so be different. Be different. And so when we as a church decide who we're going to associate with, they better believe like we do, humbly. So with Acts 29, we entered into a year of assessment process, interviews, questions, studying teachings, studying what is it that we believe? What are the non-negotiables we have as a church? How are we going to navigate this whole thing? What is it that we're going to say, this is okay with us, and here's where we'll align, and here's where we won't? And it was difficult because there was a lot going on. Some of you guys know some of the things that Acts 29 has been dealing with over the last little while, including its own founder, Mark Driscoll at Mars Hill Church, just got kicked out a couple of months ago of the very church network for sin that was going on in their ministry. So we're studying this stuff. Is this who we want to be aligned with? Do they believe the gospel the way we do? Do they have the same mission? Are we going to be ox and ox or ox and donkey? And it took us over a year to go through and study and prepare. I wrote over 60-something pages of statements on what I believe, how I lead my family, how the church government works here at the church, what our beliefs and all these different things are because they were assessing us at the same time, making sure, yes, we are aligned. We can serve together. We can be two oxes pulling the plow way faster than we were doing it on our own, and we can stand together because we agreed on the sovereignty of God and his desire to see people saved. We agreed on gospel-centered ministry, on the reality and the current operations of the Holy Spirit and his empowerment to encourage and to do ministry through us, the equality of men and women, but the special call of leadership on men and the missionary call of the local church as the vessel by which God spreads the gospel throughout the world. We said on those five things, we're together, let's do this. And so we're able to join together. But in other ministries, we have to, as churches, make judgments and say, those guys are outside the bounds of what God teaches here in the scriptures. We cannot affiliate with them. So those are important from the standpoint of the church as a whole. We are, as a church, to make judgments. But what about you guys as individuals? Because it applies to you as well. Let me ask you this. Who is it that you allow to speak to? Who is it that you gain wisdom from? Because you go, man, judgment just seems wrong. We're not supposed to do that, and we've heard it so many times. Stop judging me, stop judging me, stop judging me. But we need to understand that the greatest danger that the church faces is usually not outside the church, it's within the church. Not every book at Evangel should be read. Not every book that's sold at christianbooks.com should be read. Not every teacher on TBN, I'll say it differently, most teachers on TBN should not be listened to. And we need to pay attention to who us as believers align ourselves, because remember the context. The church and the people of the church are getting their direction, their mission, their counsel, and their wisdom from people who preach a false gospel. And so as us, members of the church, who do you gain wisdom from? When you're dealing with things in life, who do you align yourself with and allow yourself to be guided by? It is amazing. I see this over and over and over. When a marriage is on the rocks, it's like that one of those people, like all their divorced friends just rally around them. Have you ever noticed that? And they'll say things like, I understand what you're dealing with. You gotta make some decisions for you. You deserve to be happy. You have put up with this long. That is a false gospel. I love your friends, but that's a false gospel. 
That's nothing of the life of cross. That's elevating you above truths of Scripture. If that's the kind of wisdom that you're getting, you need to be able to have the discernment that says, wait a minute, something's not lining up here, and I can't be part of this kind of counsel. I can't allow that to be what guides me and directs me as a believer in Christ. Because God bless them, I love them, but I'm different from them. That doesn't mean that we separate from them completely. No. No, in fact, Paul's teachings are equally filled with, hey, go, spread the gospel. If you've got unbelievers around you, how are they going to be saved if you have no fellowship with them? But what we're talking about here are intimate details of your life, wisdom, counsel, direction. Who will you follow? And that doesn't just deal with people outside the church. Same thing. You guys know the name Rob Bell? And Rob Bell was considered one of the 25 most influential Christians on the planet just a few years ago. He wrote a book a few years later about hell, saying he doesn't necessarily really believe in it, and it's been so long, Rob Bell, ever since. But just this week, he released a book called The Zim Zim of Love. A new understanding, the Zim Zim of Marriage, it's a weird name. The Zim Zim, Zim Zim of Love, A New Way of Understanding Love. And if you're like, man, that just sounds new agey and weird, it's because it totally is. And, And this is what he did. He wrote a book about marriage and love. This guy was one of the most influential pastors in the country. He wrote a book about marriage that takes a rabbinical teaching from centuries ago and says, based on this rabbinical philosophy that he refers to as zimzum, this is how you should navigate in your marriage. Now, first of all, he doesn't mention Jesus, but like one time, and it's a passing reference in the entire book, and he's building his entire philosophy of love and marriage on, look, we love our Jewish friends, right? But you do remember, it's a false religion. It's a religion that denies the Messiah and Jesus Christ. And so let's think about that. The Bible tells us that marriage is designed to point out or to exemplify the gospel. That's why it was designed, Ephesians 5. So how can you then write a book that says this is the new way to understand love? How can you understand marriage at all and not even reference the gospel that it's it's designed to actually point to? Answer, you can't. And so as Christians who will find that book in our Christian bookstores, christianbook.com, it's gonna be there. You have to make judgments. You have to be able to go, I understand, I've been given a revelation of the truth, I've been given the scriptures to drive me, and my direction in life comes from scriptures, not from authors. You need to be able to have that with me. You need to be able to think through even the very things that I teach and go, Is that truth? Or is that Jeff masquerading as an angel of light? He ain't no angel. Okay. Donkey of light. But this is true. This is what we're called to do. And and so for you, I'm encouraging you guys, look, use discernment. The Holy Spirit, there is a spiritual gift of discernment that God desires to exercise through you. The Bible talks over and over and over about false teachers, false prophets, people that will lead the church astray that come from within. And so we got to be a little more, we got to be a little more discerning. We got to look at the posts that we see on Facebook. And before we hit retweet or share any of those things, we got to be able to go, is that true? Is that real? Is that what the scriptures tell me? Because Jesus is saying here, the Spirit is saying here through Paul, do not be unequally yoked. Don't join yourself to wisdom that does not accurately reflect the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But do it humbly. 
There's nothing more irritating to me than watching arguments on social media. I'm out. If I'm not your Facebook friend anymore, it's because I'm no one's Facebook friend anymore. I should just tell you, I just couldn't, I, it was, it was over it. Killed my account, gone. Be humble, be different. Why? Because Jesus came and saved you and he adopted you into his family and his very life is an example of humility and service and love that would reject false teaching but was reaching out, begging that people would be saved. So as you navigate even social media when you see things, you need to go, okay, Jesus is my example. My goal is not to be right, but that they might be one. So how do I even disagree with these things in a way that exercises and points out humility? How do I show love to someone else? But at the same time, God, will you grant me discernment so that I can see lies from truth? May we not be promoting books that do not reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ because if it doesn't reflect the gospel, it's not gonna save anyone. And there are lives at stake. That's what we're called to. That's our mission. So may God grant our church humility and wisdom. May we constantly be reevaluating our positions and making sure. And there's times I've taught things in the past and then years later been like, oh, get that off the internet. God's moving in us. He's changing us over time. We're not perfect yet. Raise your hand in here if you're perfect. Right? But we're different. We are children of the king, empowered by the king, with the spirit of the king with us, with the words of the king to guide us. And blessed in this particular nation, in this particular place and time to look through 2,000 years of the king's history since he came. So may we be stewards of those things to navigate life and ministry wisely for the glory of Jesus. Amen? Will you guys stand with me and let's pray? Jesus, will you just guide and lead your church? Lord, if there's areas, even in the things that I said, where pride or arrogance have risen up, God, I pray that those things would be wiped away, that there would be no spirit of pride or we know better or any of those things, God, but at the same time, we have a very clear truth that's been given us that we are stewards of and that we're called to stand on. So God, may we be those who can see wolves and see dangerous teachings. May we be able to separate ourselves from their wisdom and their influence, but at the same time, God, will you give us a heart that they might be saved? Lord, help us to navigate the tension that clearly exists in that. That we can navigate with skill, distancing ourselves from wisdom that would go against your word, but at the same time extending a hand of fellowship and love to those who need your grace. God, may you protect your theology. May you protect your doctrine in this church and in every church. May the gospel never fall away from the lips of those who believe in you. And Lord, in everything that we do, may all of our work come out of a realization of our identity as children of God. And may that keep us humble. Because Lord, we have nothing but by your grace. We have not figured it out. It's not that we're smarter than anyone. We are not the favorites, but we have been shown great favor. So God, we humbly thank you for your mercy in our lives. And may we continue to extend such mercy standing boldly against falsity, protecting those who can't protect themselves, but humbly exemplifying repentance and humility that others might learn of you and be saved. We pray these things for our church and for churches all over this valley and all over this nation 
and all over this world. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, I love you guys. We'll be here Wednesday night at 7 in the book of Mark. Go share.